When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is sponsored by Little Passports. Keep your kids busy this summer with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Right now, Mom and Dad Are Fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code MOMANDDAD40. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for July 2nd, 2015, the Dad and Dad Are Fighting edition. I'm Dan Coist. I'm an editor at Slate and the dad of Lyra, who's 10, and Harper, who's 7. Allison is out this week, moving her family from the cities to the suburbs, an epic journey I hope we hear all about next episode. So today, I'm joined by a special guest host. I'm Dan Check, Vice Chairman of Slate and father of Elliot, age six, and Sylvie, age three. Thanks for having me, Dan. Hey, Dan. Hey, Dan. So, once again, it's Dad and Dad are fighting today in honor of Obergefell versus Hodges, the important Supreme Court case that has legalized gay marriage in all 50 states. So we're going to talk to Andrew Solomon about gay parenting in the wake of that historic decision, and then we'll discuss parenting advice. Why does my blood boil when anyone tries to give me some? Plus, triumphs and fails, a listener call about age differences between kids, and responses to our segment on travel sports. But first, if you are a fan of the show, please tell a friend. Today, I would like to ask you to tell a coworker about mom and dad are fighting. Please interpret this broadly. It could mean the woman in the cubicle next to yours, or like someone you volunteer with, or like another parent on the PTA, but just walk right up to that person and say, would you like to hear a guy put his foot in his mouth on important questions of work-life balance every two weeks? Because I've got a podcast for you. More listeners means more interesting emails, more phone calls, more advertisers, and more live shows, like our very first live show in Durham two weeks ago, which was a smashing success. On that note, thank you to everyone at Motorco and Merge Records and everyone who came out to our live show in Durham. We had a packed house. Everyone was so nice. We had so much fun. And we have a few more live shows to announce soon. We hope we are coming to your town. If you want us to come to your city and have a great idea for a place we should do the show, email us at momandad at slate.com. Dan Check, you have a plug as well. I do. And finally, please sign up for Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You get bonus segments on podcasts, including this one. This week, Plus members will get to hear the Culture Gab Fest's Julia Turner, who has, she says, a fantastic fail to share. She says it's amazing. I can't wait. I'm excited. Plus bonus podcasts and features like our brand new Slate Academy on the history of American slavery, featuring Jamel Bowie and Rebecca Onion, telling the story of our nation's foundational institution. Go to slate.com slash academy and sign up for your two-week free trial. All right, so let's start out with triumphs and fails. Dan Check, take it away. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. So I have a fail. <laughs> this is a story of small mistakes growing together to form something that I'm having a lot of trouble dealing with. And I'm hoping, Dan, that you will, in addition to hearing my fail and hopefully chortling a little bit, you will be able to offer me some advice and a way out of this uh, cell of my own making. So I'm going to start with scene one. At some point, my six-year-old son learned how to use Siri to do image searches. Uh-huh. At the 
the time, he was really obsessed with Star Wars. So mainly he would do things like say, show me a picture of Han Solo frozen in carbonite because he was really afraid of Han Solo frozen in carbonite and it was a way for him to work through that sort of That's interesting. Fear I was also his. terrified of Han Solo frozen in carbonite. Yeah, we can't watch the first half hour of Return of the Jedi because when he like wakes up, it's too much. Wow. It's, it's too much for Elliot to take. Okay. Um, and so anyway, so this is a fear that he's trying to excise, but in a bit of foreshadowing, he would also ask for pictures of Slave Leia. <laughs> So eventually he moved on to his current obsession, the Civil War. And at this point, he asks, show me a video of the Battle of Gettysburg in Lego style for kids. And apparently there are like several videos of this. So if you want to watch Civil War videos done in Lego style for kids, it's totally there. It's available. It's a YouTube search away. His like general use of search terminology is really precise and good. Yeah, it's good. I mean, well, because we dinged him for searching for the Battle of Gettysburg without saying for kids because he would get grown up Gettysburg stuff. And so then and, and so. Now he's, you know, anything that comes back off of the for kids search, he feels like is probably kids safe and should be parent approved. So anyway, so scene two, we got BJ Novak's wonderful book, The Book with No Pictures, which is this clever postmodern meta book that's entirely about how even though the book has no pictures, adults have to say all the words in the book. Have you read this book? I believe it was recommended on this podcast by a previous guest host. Jessica Roke, who you may know as your wife. I do know her as my wife. And one particularly hilarious line there in that book is, my only friend in the whole wide world is a hippo named Boo Boo Butt. So scene three, these two things kind of come together in the form of my three-year-old daughter, who has now learned how to do searches through Siri and is obsessed with this Boo Boo Butt line. And all she says into the phone, if she like, if she snatches it away from one of us is, show me a picture of Boo Boo Butt. And predictably, this turns into like an image search for like, show me a picture of butts. Right. And so then like, you know, you, you, you see the phone after this and it's basically a Bing image search with like a six pack of like butt pictures. And it's just like terrible. We haven't figured out a way to sort of like make this something that she can't do. You can get to the Siri search without unlocking the phone. So uh-huh. if like the phone's around, she can just like snatch one and immediately she's off to the races looking for boo boo butt. And so there are a lot of things that have happened here, right? There's first of all, letting kids use Siri as an image search probably not wise. I mean, the butt stuff is like, that's funny. It's just funny stuff. And then I think the third is, uh, you know, those things coming together and the kids being somewhat unsupervised with the phones. And I just don't know. I don't know how to remedy this or if it's a big deal or what I should do about it. But uh, I feel I feel bad about it as a wow, parent. Wow. That's yeah. spectacular. The first thing I would say is that I actually don't think a bunch of butts are damaging or a problem. <laughs> I do not think a six pack of butt pictures is like going to hurt your kid. I think... <laughs> Butts are everywhere. Butts are all around us. Butts are the funniest of all human parts. <laughs> so I think that's fine. I do agree that in a, in a larger scale, you can't just basically have your kids have free reign over ordering Siri to show them pictures. But I don't know a great solution, and I am not like a master of Siri. There's no way to turn Siri off, right? I don't know. If there is, I would certainly do it. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's barely useful. Right? right. There should be a way to like lock Siri. So maybe I, I need to look into this. And I'm sure that out. Apple has no interest in you locking Siri. So <laughs> that's like not an option. Uh, and you're right that you can access it without a passcode or a thumbnail print or whatever. But can you just tell your kids that there are certain things that, no, you can't tell your kid not to ask for pictures of boo-boo butts because that's all she wants to see. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I guess the only possible solution I can anticipate is to uh, 
is to just give your kids their own iPhones and let that let it be the problem on their phones and not yours. No, I don't have a great solution other than just keeping your damn phone in your pocket. That seems like a good solution. And being there when they ask for these things. But yes, that's a, that's a great fail. That's a spectacular fail. Good job. Thank you. All right. I have a good story as well. Um, and I'm not going to tell you whether it's a triumph or a fail because the story involves suspense. All right. Earlier this week, I was in Milwaukee with my two kids, um, where my family lives, my where I grew up and where my brother and my mom and my dad all live. And Lyra, my older daughter, had a very special trip planned. She was going to fly solo on her own from Milwaukee to Minneapolis to visit a very good friend of hers who recently moved from our neighborhood to Minneapolis. It's a very short flight. It's like an hour and 10 minutes. And it's obviously direct. And she's very excited about it. She's flown alone before, but she's still thrilled about seeing her friend and thrilled about this big adventure. So I planned out the whole day to be ready to leave at 9 in the morning for her 11 a.m. flight from Milwaukee to Minneapolis. Because, you know, she's flying alone. I have to. We have to check in together. I accompany her to the gate. I sign her away. Like, I sign a little form that basically says, like... You're no longer my child. I think I think that's what the, the form means. And I don't even leave the airport until the plane lifts up off the ground. So um, as we walked out the door uh, of my brother's house where we were staying um, in Mequon, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Milwaukee, I idly glanced at my email and I realized that, in fact, it was that the flight landed at 11 a.m., not took off. In fact, it took off at 9.50. It was 9.05 at this exact moment. According to Google Maps, I just checked before we started recording, it is a 28-minute drive from my brother's house to General Mitchell International Field in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I didn't speed a lot because I saw like a million cop cars on I-43, and I thought that that wouldn't help. And while I, I did speed a little, I sped, I won't deny that I sped some, and when I, it seemed like there were opportunities to do so. While I was driving, I first gave Lyra the whole speech I'd planned to give her about how she needed to be very considerate and polite to Katya's parents. She needed to be very respectful to Katya's things into her house. And then I said, oh, also, actually, we're running very, very late because I messed up and it's totally possible that we are just going to miss your flight. And I'm very sorry if we do. If we do, you will just get on a later flight. You'll still get to see Katya. You'll still get to take this trip. But when we get to the airport, if we get there in time, we have to run. We have to run through the airport. You can't not run. You have to run. So she panicked. I also panicked a little because the idea of like having to go through all this again and rebooking her and somehow getting her to the airport when I myself was flying out of town like two hours later, it just seemed like a nightmare. So anyways, we pull into the airport at 928. So it's 23 minutes door to door. We run to the Southwest ticket counter and I yelled, can we skip everyone? And because this was Milwaukee where everyone is nice, everyone said, okay, sure. So we ran to the ticket counter, and the lady from Southwest was very helpful. She printed everything out as fast as she could. She gave us our passes, and she said, you have 11 minutes before the doors to the plane close. So then we run up the escalator, and we run to security, and there's a big line at security, but I just run through the TSA pre-check line where there's no one, and I go up to the front, and I say, can I skip everyone? And because it is Milwaukee, everyone says, okay. So then we go up to the TSA guy and he says, okay. And we run through security and we run through the metal detectors and we pick up all our stuff and we run to gate A23, which is the last gate at the end of the terminal. And when we get there, we, as we're approaching, we see a woman from Southwest who says, is that Lyerly Coyce? And I go, oh God, we're too late. And she says, you made it. Hey. You have two minutes left. You don't even have to run anymore. So the answer is, 
It is a reminder that our greatest parenting triumphs are only made possible by our greatest parenting fails. So I have faith, Dan Check, that somewhere down the line, you will triumph in some way due to your daughter knowing, without a doubt, what boo-boo butts look like in real life. <laughs> That's the lesson. All right, let's stop for a word from our sponsor from Little Passports. Take it away, Dan. Keep your kids busy this summer with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Pen pals Sam and Sophia will send your child a monthly package in the mail, each highlighting a new global destination like Kenya or Spain. Follow the journey on the wall-size world map and enjoy learning through letters, souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. Mom and Dad are fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with the promo code MOMANDDAD40. Learn more at www.littlepassports.com slash MOMANDDAD. Now, listeners know that uh, we are subscribers to Little Passports. Harper gets it um, whenever it comes, and she has her little suitcase, and she totally loves it. So uh, she's really excited about whatever is waiting for her when she gets back from her trip to Milwaukee, which is also going on right now. There is, in fact, a Little Passports package waiting for her, and it will be the first thing she opens when she gets home. Littlepassports.com slash MOMANDDAD. All right, let's move on to our first topic. On Friday, the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. Although, of course, marriage and parenting do not always go hand in hand, gay or straight, all parents are not spouses, and all spouses are not parents, we nonetheless thought this would be a good time to talk about the very particular challenges and universal joys of same-sex parenting. Andrew Solomon is, of course, the author of The Amazing Far From the Tree, but he's also a dad. People still ask my husband and me which of us is the mom, Andrew wrote in The New Statesman recently, which, as one lesbian friend pointed out to me, is like asking which chopstick is the fork. His essay, Don't Think of the White Bear, is a provocative look at the ways that the straight world pressures parents of all kinds to embody very specific parenting traditions. He joins us on the phone from his home. Welcome to Dad and Dad Are Fighting, Andrew. What a pleasure to be here. So uh, to start with, tell us about your son. How old is he? Our son is six. His name is George, and he is an altogether delightful creature. I can only imagine with parents like his. You wrote in your essay that having children changed the way you thought about your own orientation and the way you presented it to the world. What you wrote was, children confiscate your mask. What did you mean by that? I felt for a long time that I was gay and that I was going to be definitive about it, but I didn't feel as much of an impetus to fight for equal acceptance of gay people when it was only my own uh, acceptance that I was striving for. But once I had children, I felt that I wanted those children to be able to go out and proudly talk about who their family was, and I certainly felt that I didn't want them to grow up in the shadow of some stigma that was attendant on who I was. And so my commitment to the idea of of equality, which had always been there, was enormously strengthened by the process of becoming a father. Yeah, that's interesting. Having children really forces people to crystallize their beliefs in many ways, but I think that is especially true in that particular case. The Supreme Court decision is obviously a sea change in the way our nation treats gay people and considers gay people legally, but gay men and women have been having and making families for decades. Do you feel like this decision affects a family like yours in any concrete way? Oh, I think the effect is almost inestimably huge. The idea when I was growing up that we would ever reach a point at which uh, gay relationships, even short of being called marriage, would have any kind of recognition and acceptance in the larger society was unimaginable. Now, I've had the good fortune of living in the relatively liberal enclave of New York, where our family has essentially been accepted all along. But so long as there are laws on the books 
in any part of the country that say that families such as mine are unequal to are not as good as other kinds of families, um, that for the children to be growing up in a family like mine is a misfortune because they somehow couldn't get into a real family and so on and so forth. Those presumptions, I think, have an enormously damaging effect, uh, even on the people uh, who are not specifically penalized in direct ways by the laws themselves. And so this move toward acceptance, which paves the way for celebration of the diversity of human family, I think is strengthening for all families, but is certainly particularly strengthening for gay ones. That's really interesting. And you're talking about, I think, the diversity of families there. One of the questions that I would have for you is, like, as you are forming a family that's, you know, different than the family that you grew up in, what traditions do you find yourself gravitating towards? And where do you find new traditions? And and how does that kind of reflect itself as you're forming an identity for your family and for your son? You know, the traditions that I think I gravitate toward are the traditions of um, love and support and mutuality and engagement. My husband and I were both very, very attached to our families of origin. We both essentially had pretty happy childhoods. And I think both of us feel that we want to create the intimacy and the coziness and the emotional focus um, and the joy uh, that were part of those childhoods. Of course, there are a million tiny traditions that one passes along. You know, my mother's recipe for chocolate chip cookies, the books my father read to me when I was a little kid. There's all of that. The way, I suppose, in which things are different is that the realm of possibility seems to me to be broader than it was when I was growing up. So I had the sense that in order to be happy, you had to fit in. You had to do a reasonably good job of conforming to the standards of the society around you, which I thought were essentially intractable. And it was that conviction that I think caused a lot of pain in my life as I realized that I wasn't going to fit in, that I was gay, that I was different, that I couldn't just be a sort of solid member of the American middle class in the way that I had anticipated being. And I hope that what we're giving to our children that I didn't have in quite the same way is a sense of uh, as much freedom as possible, a sense that if you don't like the standards of the society you're living in, you're at liberty to go out and change them. That seems not only a reflection of your own particular family as opposed to the families that you and your husband grew up in, but also a reflection of our times, which seem much more accepting of that idea, at least from my standpoint, than, than when you were growing up or when I was growing up. I think they are, and I don't think we could have had the Supreme Court decision if that weren't the case. Um, But I think that it's easy to think that because the Supreme Court has ruled that that battle has been won. In the first place, the battle hasn't even been won for gay people. We're still subject to job discrimination and housing discrimination in most American states. Um, Even though the marriages are recognized, they're frequently not socially accepted. People write that they get married, and then they get um, excluded from the communities that they live in. But in a larger sense, I feel as though what we need to do is to explode the idea that there are certain standard ways of doing things that are the only acceptable ways. So we now accept gay families, but there's still quite a lot of prejudice against single parents by choice or otherwise. There's still uh, enormous prejudice against people who are in more complicated parenting arrangements in which a number of parents are responsible uh, for children rather than just two parents. There's still a need for everyone to try to get new forms of family 
effectively to be imitations of old forms of families. And so I feel that liberalization process is still in many ways in its infancy. Yeah, and that's what your piece really seems to be getting at. You There's this line where you note that the, the pressure on us, and by this you're, you mean I think not only gay parents, but parents of all different sort of non-normative stripes, to embody normative traditions can be paralyzing. How does that pressure manifest in your day-to-day life for a parent like me who is just sort of blithely going about my man and wife existence in a middle-class suburb? I don't think I see that or understand how that pressure exerts itself truly. Can you give me some examples? Well, as you suggested in the opening, there's a great deal of uh, uh, people saying to my husband and me, which of you is really the mom? But my family is a more complicated family uh, than uh, you've portrayed so far. I also have a daughter with a good friend from college who had got divorced. She and I were very old friends and decided to have a child together. My daughter is seven and a half. And my husband is the biological father of two children with some lesbian friends in Minneapolis. And all four of these children call us daddy and papa. And we have extremely close relationships with all of them, though our uh, younger son is the only one we're bringing up full time in our own household. There are people, when I describe the structure of my family, who burst into applause. And I've taken a kind of public stance, and so I've described it a good bit. And I would say that's the most frequent response I get. But there are also an awful lot of people who burst into applause and then sort of say, I wonder how that works, or that's crazy, or, you know, something along those lines. And I think the idea that there are effectively six parents of four children in three states to many people doesn't seem much like a family. And so I feel a lot of the time as though I'm sort of Christopher Columbus in this, and I'm busy sort of saying, there's a whole new world out here. Wait, it's really amazing. There's gold there, and so on and so forth. And, you know, that is both exciting and incredibly exhausting. What does your son think about the differences in all the various families in his life, not only the ones he's closely related to, but the ones he encounters day to day? Well, he is a lovely and poetic soul, and we said to him a while ago when it seemed apropos of something, um, uh, I said, George, do you do you ever wish that you had a mother and a father instead of having um, two dads the way you do? Does it ever make things difficult? And he thought for a second, and then he said, but if I didn't have two dads, then I wouldn't have one of you, and that would make me really sad. I think that's really interesting and goes to, you know, how particular our experience of our families is, you know, that having loving people in our lives is really kind of paramount and that all the rest of it in terms of the traditional structures and everything is is probably less important than having those close, deep relationships. And I, I think that gets to, you know, what you're talking about, you know, finding that love and that freedom inside of the family. One of the things inside of your essay that that stuck out to me was uh, one of the lines in the essay is, um, no much wanted to be belittled, but we tolerate slurs surprisingly often for ourselves. For our lionized children, we demand freedom from insult. And I'm curious as to how you kind of define insult or what, what things that happen in a, in a day-to-day environment that are insulting or that, you know, and how you respond to that. Well, you know, it happens at a million different levels, some of them very profound and some of them essentially very trivial. You know, we've had the occasion of going through passport control and being asked where his mother is and having to say um, he doesn't have a mother, he has two fathers. You know, we always carry his birth certificate with us in addition to his passport if we're doing international travel. So there are situations in which the idea that we are a family is simply called into question and they can be embarrassing and they can be uh, uncomfortable. 
there have been moments when we've sort of met people. I mean, the people at his school have essentially been incredibly lovely, but there have been one or two episodes when I've thought, oh, I wonder whether that family is being a little bit chilly because they actually just think we're boring and irritating or whether they're being a little bit chilly because they're uncomfortable with what the structure uh, of our family is. It's so easy for us. We just know it's because we're boring and irritating. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So it's just been sort of a gradual process of of amalgamating uh, all of those things. And of course, I mean, the Supreme Court decision makes a big difference, but you can't pick up the paper without reading some other story about, I don't know, the leader of a Baptist church somewhere in the rural South who said that families like ours are a crime against God and that people like us should be strung up and killed. That comes up all the time. Um, I mean, there's prejudice against lots of people. There's anti-Semitism. There's racism. Lots of people live in the face of prejudice. But the uh, prejudice against gay families has been going through a particularly virulent moment, even as liberalization occurs. Indeed, it's been going through that in part because of that liberalization occurring. And, you know, the kids are getting to be an age where they see the news and they see the newspaper and they see those headlines and they have a sense that that's part of what's out there. And so we have to bring them up with the understanding of, well, there are some people who really don't believe that we're a family, but we know that's not the case. And having said that George made that incredibly um, loving and lovely comment, he's six, and at some point he'll be 14, and these things will read differently to him, and I'm sure he'll have moments of being frustrated by those attitudes and doubtless moments of being angry at us, because if he didn't, he would be having a very peculiar adolescence. Uh, at six, he's I feel like he's very near the age or the grade where kids really start learning about the civil rights movement in school. And I know in my Virginia school, there was no mention made in that curriculum of gay rights, for example, or I mean, or even really of women's rights. There's a lot of talk of Martin Luther King to six and seven year olds, and it doesn't go much further than that. Do you know if that's in the curriculum in your school, if there's any mention of gay rights or the gay rights struggle? I I'm unaware of there being any such mention at his school. I do know that we were recently reading a little book about Abraham Lincoln that he had that was really um, a children's book that was deemed very low. But having to explain to him what slavery was and that we in this country had ever engaged in practices like that was so bewildering to him. And, you know, he has close friends at school who are African-American and we said, you know, it still can be hard for people who are African-American. And I remember thinking as we were having this conversation instigated by this essentially sweet little book about Abraham Lincoln, I thought, I wonder at what point we'll make the remark that that same kind of prejudice that he finds so bewildering as it might apply um, to his classmates or might have applied to their forebears also in some ways applies to his family. We didn't get into it now, but we will. You will. Yeah, uh, that the yes, that slavery conversation I remember as being a, like a very distinct and disillusioning moment for each of my kids when I had that with them. And there are numerous other disillusioning conversations that every family has to have, and that goes even greater for families with same-sex parents, I think. And that can be very highly motivating, too. I mean, I remember first hearing about the Holocaust from my father, and I didn't understand how people who were simply Jewish like us had been killed just for being who we were, and I still remember it as a kind of turning point in my 
understanding of humanity. And I'm currently working on a book of my international reporting and realized how much of my attitude toward wanting to be a citizen of the larger world came out of the anxiety that I experienced as a child from knowing that some people were just Jewish in their own country and got killed for it because they had no place else to go. And so I hope that the effect of this learning on George will ultimately be in many ways a constructive one, but there's no question that there will be some degree of trauma that we look forward to. All right, well, we'll have a link to Andrew's really great article, Don't Think of the White Bear, on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. It's been a huge pleasure. You know, Dan, part of what I took away from Solomon's piece is that not only is every kind of family different, right? Every individual family is different. It was a reminder to me that even as a family who is not sort of one of these new generations of kinds of families there are, that trying to fit any of our families, even my family, into this like extremely normative tradition is a recipe for disappointment. Like the more I compare myself with other families and try and fit myself into whatever ideal, the more likely I am to disappoint like myself and everyone around me. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely true. And I, th- I think the thing that I really took away from it is, you know, the idea, I think he described himself as being similar to a Christopher Columbus. And one of the things that I sort of think right now is that we just have this like infinite array of choices about how to parent. And one of the things that we can do for our fellow parents is just to be generous with one another about, you know, how it is that we go about thinking about other people and judging other people. And I think this will come up again as we talk about, you know, the article. Yeah, the New York Magazine article we're going to talk about in in our second segment. All right, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at momanddad@slate.com. I know we have a lot of gay and lesbian parents among our listeners. Please tell us if you feel the kind of pressure that Andrew writes about, how you deal with it in your day-to-day life, and what kinds of traditions you're drawing on to make your family the kind of family you want to have. And this is a great lead-in as well to an announcement of a great event that our New York and New York area listeners can attend, Outward Live, Monday, July 13th at City Winery in New York. Join the writers and editors of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ blog, as they discuss the impact of the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage and other topics live on stage in New York on July 13th. Outward's J. Brian Lauder, Mark Joseph Stern, and June Thomas will welcome two special guests, Evan Wolfson, the attorney considered by many to be the architect of legal same-sex marriage, and the great Ted Allen of the Food Network show's Chopped and All-Star Academy, most known to me as one of the original cast members of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. He'll be on hand to discuss the state of gay stereotypes in the media. Plus, audience members will get the chance to pose their very own Ask a Homo question. Be in the audience for Outward Live Monday, July 13th at City Winery in New York. For tickets, go to slate.com slash NYC Outward. Slate.com slash NYC Outward. Slate Plus members get 30% off their ticket purchase. That's slate.com slash NYC Outward. All right, let's move on to our listener call. Uh, we have a good one today. It is from listener Kyle in Baltimore. Take it away, Kyle. I'm about two years older than my younger sister, and when we grew up together, we fought mercilessly. However, my partner is about a year older than his younger brother, and when they grew up, they got along magnificently. Now, I always thought that our uh, proximity in age was the reason that we fought so bad, and he always assumed that his proximity in age with his younger brother was the reason they got along so well. So assuming that you could actually control exactly when you have kids, what is the ideal age difference between two siblings? Thanks a lot for your help. I look forward to your answer. Bye. 
I think that's a great question. So I come at this from a strange place because I'm an only child, so I have no idea what it's like to actually have a sibling. But I've seen, you know, my kids get together and be both wonderful with each other and then also fight with one another quite a bit. They're a little further apart in age. They're about three years apart in age. But what the research tells us, I think, is that for kids who are as close uh, together to their siblings as you and your partner are, is that they tend to get along a little bit better, right, as opposed to kids who are a little further away. And the theory there is that the older sibling doesn't feel the loss of attention in the same way when the new sibling comes along in the same way that they do when they're a little bit older. Now, with that said, there's also some evidence that the way in which your parents treat you has quite a bit to do with how intense that sibling rivalry can be. And I would add another thing, which is that, and this is something that just having two kids, you sort of notice is that all kids are different and certain personalities really get along better than other personalities. So I think you start with with kids who really are their own people from the time that they're born and may be more prone to fighting or less prone to fighting. And then you also have sort of this parent element. Um, and, and the key thing, I think, is, as you're sort of thinking about this as a parent or a prospective parent, is that the two things that seem to reduce sibling fighting are specific specifically for the father and the family to be affectionate and helpful and for the mother to not be in constant conflict with the kids. If you can get those two things down, you know, there's going to be some sibling rivalry. It's a natural thing. It's a part of life, um, but it doesn't need to be debilitating for the kids in question. Right. And Kyle, in your case, because you've, you've got two fathers, you can just concentrate on one part of that advice. <laughs> um, you know, it's really interesting in looking into this. Dan cited some of the research that our awesome intern, Jesse, came up with for us. But there is like a ton of science and also pseudoscience on this very important issue. And a lot of it really conflicts. For people who are worried about biological parenting and the sort of the effects on a mom's body, a very, very short gap between pregnancies, like less than a year, appears to increase the risk of complications in labor and birth. But then according to some studies, those are also increased by a gap of more than five years. Children who are really close together in age do tend, as Dan says, to have much more intimate connections. That Studies really show that. But also, they sometimes tend to have more conflict or competition, especially if they're the same gender. As Dan noted, it's much easier for an older child to deal with a new baby if there's a gap of less than two years, um, because in the sort of older than two years window up to maybe five or six years or so, it's very, very difficult for a child to deal with the loss of attention and affection that comes with a baby. But there's just so much, and all the studies seem to contradict each other, um, or at least be in conflict with each other. And the differing experiences, Kyle, that you and your partner had suggests that there's no like really great answer. My personal take is I'm a big proponent of just getting on with it because then when your kids go off to college or get out in the nest, the sooner you have them and the closer together you have them, the less elderly and decrepit you will be at that point in your life. I think that's important. But really, you know, who knows? Our kids are about two years apart. Let's just say that wasn't exactly on purpose precisely, but it's worked really well for us. This is a real weasel answer, but the real answer is whatever is best for your family. Or consider only having one kid. That's another option. But yes, I, I think that there's no definitive thing. I think that Dan's advice uh, on the science of it and on the research on it is good. Um, I think that in the end, whatever separation of kids you have is great. I say knock them out as quick as you can, though, because that way you're setting yourself up for an easier life later on, even if it's harder right now. 
Yeah, and I think especially thinking about you know kids who are close in age, that idea of really going only going through, you know, getting through diapers faster, not getting you know put back into diapers. I yes, mean, we we just finally got out of diapers, and I think like that's a that's a wonderful wonderful moment when you realize you know that you're not going to be right um, dealing with that anymore, um, and that when your kids go to college, you yourself will not be in diapers due to being so <laughs> fucking old. Right, right. All right, that's a great question. Thank you for the call. If you've got a question you want us to answer, give us a call at any hour of the day or night and leave a message on our voicemail at 424-255-7833. That number again, 424-255-RUDE. All right. Now, before we move on to our second segment, I want to do a little bit more listener feedback because we got a lot of emails in response to our discussion two episodes ago, the episode before our live show about travel sports. We got a lot of emails from people who've done travel sports and loved it, expressing their unalloyed enthusiasm for it. We got a lot of emails from people who did travel sports as children or as parents and hated it and wanted to weigh in and vent. But there were two emails in particular that I really wanted to point out. The first one was uh, from reader Catherine in Connecticut. She writes, you asked if listeners had different perspectives, i.e. more positive, on youth athletics, and I certainly do. I've just come to the end of a quarter century of being a baseball mom, and I wouldn't change a thing about the experience. But I've also come to see some of the long-term costs of the experience, which, for some of your listeners just starting down this road, might not be as apparent. First, no matter what a coach or advisor says to the contrary, there are significant costs the euphemism is trade-offs for elite athletes in academics from the high school years on. Studying in the car, in the hotel, leaving classes early for games puts all these players at a real disadvantage. Quote-unquote, balancing academics and athletics in high school often means simply choosing fewer honors or AP classes. In college, this continues and the consequences amplify. Even at D3 level, which is what my sons played, it is nearly impossible to major in a science or be pre-med while playing a varsity sport. Some coaches even tell their players that certain classes and majors are not recommended. Perhaps most importantly, if you play some sport at a high level, you continue to do so in the summers between college years, thus negating the possibility for career-enhancing internships, travel, or paid employment. Lastly, it is impossible to minimize the impact of family lives dedicated to sports on the siblings who do not play them. These additional members of the family have no choice in what form their holidays, weekends, or summer vacations will take. There was a lot of joking at baseball games about the Sisters Club, groups of girls who learn to hang out at baking hot fields and concession stands and in hotel swimming pools while their brothers play in yet another really important tournament. What else might these siblings be doing if they had the opportunity? It has been hard for me to admit in the end that youth sports had serious costs for my children when their benefits were so evident. My sons went to excellent schools, gained tremendous confidence through their success, made lifelong friends. They played with such joy and passion that there was never a time when we could have or should have said enough is enough. But the youth sport haters out there do have a point maybe several, and those who love youth sports need to approach the experience with their eyes wide open to its long-term consequences. All right, and then one other shorter email that I got, which stemmed from a long conversation that I had with uh, my neighbor and friend and listener to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Ashley from Arlington, who's one of the moms, in fact, we know whose kids play travel sports and was one of the impetuses for that segment. Um, she wrote, reminding me after we talked about it, that a decision to try travel sports doesn't necessarily mean giving up yours and your kid's social life because there is a whole social life that travel sports gives you. She wrote, the allure of travel sports was a surprise to us. 
Yet the camaraderie, the community, and the friendships that our entire family has made in the seven-month travel hockey season for our 12-year-old son have been wonderful. We spend a lot of cold hours together in rinks all over the area, and our team parents are supportive of every kid in both good and bad days. In addition to thrilling hockey games, we gather for team dinners, happy hours, laser tag, movies, bowling, and award ceremonies that build memories that will last for our kids and for us for the rest of our lives. To which I say... Ashley, I'm not interested in you and your family hanging out with other people. I want you to hang out with us. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. Uh, we got a lot of great emails, and I really appreciated reading other perspectives on this topic. All right, let's move on to our second segment. In a recent piece on New York Magazine's The Cut, Kim Brooks asked, why is parenting advice so hard to take? She told a story of her uncle taking umbrage at something Brooks' daughter was doing at a family get-together and saying that when he was a kid, the parents called the shots, and his advice to Brooks was that she should parent that way too. She wrote, My heart was racing. I felt what must have been a cocktail of adrenaline, epinephrine, and cortisol flooding my brain. When I finally answered, my own voice sounded far away. Thanks for telling me how to raise my own kid, I said. Now, Brooks's uncle apologized immediately, but Brooks nevertheless didn't speak to him for six months after this. She says that she's embarrassed by her anger now and that she has many friends who've told her she went totally overboard and not talking to him for so long. But at the same time, she notes that many people she knows have their own stories of becoming totally infuriated by innocuous or non-innocuous parenting advice given by a friend or a family member. And I have to say, in reading this, I shared Kim Brooks's feelings. If some relative said that to me, I would do the exact same thing. I would maybe talk to them never instead of just six months later. So why are we happy to read parenting advice online or listen to it in podcast form? Uh, but if we get it in person, it, it totally induces rage. Dan, do you feel this way about parenting advice you get or are you totally zen about it? I try to be zen about it, but I, in no area of my life, am particularly zen. So it doesn't <laughs> always go very well. And I think, I think, especially when when my son was really small, I would, I would, uh, the thing that would always get me is if I had him outside people would always feel that he did not have enough layers on. Oh and I would God. get the like, he, where's his hat? Where are his gloves? Where's his... And he'd be fine, but other people would be freaking out. Grandmas. And they, Grandmas are the fucking worst about that. Yeah. Not my grandmas or the kids' grandmas, but rando grandmas. Yeah. And it's really, it's really, I found it to be really tough to deal with and I would get kind of snappish about it. Um, and, and I think for me, what I realized is that I, before I had a kid, I had spent my entire adult life not really receiving advice or criticism from strangers. And right. all of a sudden, as soon as you have a kid, it's like everybody feels like the slightest little thing that happens is like, is caused to judge you, judge your child, judge your parenting style. And I realized that kind of worst of all that I was doing that to other people as well. Yeah. Um, and so the big thing that I've tried to do is to just relax off of that. Um, and it's actually helped me to be less intense when people are critical towards me. I do okay when rando grandmas say something about whether my kid should be wearing a hat or not. I can like laugh that off. Yeah. I have problems when it's my friends or especially my relatives. Like basically... I don't even talk about parenting philosophies with either of my sisters-in-law because we have different parenting philosophies and they're both great moms, but they're very different from me. And I know that if we like got into a serious discussion about it, I would be driven crazy by the things they said about my kids and they would be driven crazy by the things I said about theirs. So I just basically avoid it entirely. I can't avoid it with my mom and my mom is the worst situation because 
I will like laugh off something that someone says to me in the park, but I will seethe with rage and be a dick to my mom, like about the most innocuous, kind, normal, boring pieces of advice she gives me about my kid. I don't know. It's like some chemical reaction I have to the fact that my mom, who was a great mom to me, would deign to give me advice about parenting when she hasn't had a kid in 25 years. Like, man, I turned into a dick about that. Yeah, I, I, I will also acknowledge, uh, being, taking things in ways that are different than the way in which they were given, right? You yeah. know, the people, people are really honestly trying to be helpful and they're not trying to get under your skin or anything like that. And it's, you know, and yeah, I think, I think especially from parents and from in-laws, it's really easy to be, uh, ungenerous in your responses and readings of what other people say. And I, I don't, I don't know how to deal with that. Right. The imbalance it. between the amount of judgment I feel and the amount of judgment that is actually being delivered is huge Yeah, because the people who are actually judging me are doing it silently the way I am judging other people, right? The people who are actually judging us very rarely judge us to our face. Right. The people who say things to our face are usually trying to be helpful. And so treating them like the assholes is clearly not the way to go. I mean, so we've talked about this a lot on the show. I mean, the obvious reason that I'm hypersensitive to this criticism is, right, parenting is the one thing in my life that is like the perfect cocktail of minimum self-confidence and maximum giving a shit. So, for example, I'm insecure about my ability to play basketball, but I also don't care that much about it. I care a lot about my job, but I feel relatively secure in my ability to do it. But with parenting, I've got neither of those things. And so anything that anyone says to me immediately goes to my deepest insecurities, and I respond badly to that. Well, and I think the other thing, just coming coming back to the article, you know, she talks about her daughter will have a tantrum if she doesn't sit in this one car seat in this one position. And that's totally relatable. So first of all, you know, the uncle in this case, there's absolutely no way that the world is the way that he describes his childhood or ever was that there was this time when kids just did exactly what it was that they were supposed to do. I just don't believe that that right. ever happened. Right. So first of all, like, like people's recollections of their own childhood are just utter bullshit, right? And you have to sort of like, just acknowledge that and move on that things were never as black and white as that guy would you know have you believe but then the second is that for me the experience of being judged based on somebody who i don't really have control over there's this illusion of control that you have over your children and on good days you have more control and on bad <laughs> days you have absolutely none or you have like a negative attraction you know in terms of in terms of the control and to be judged based on their behavior and to then see them judged harshly in ways that they can't really understand because they're just not there socially you know that's that i find to be really really difficult and i you know that desire to protect my children from that and that desire to you know for me to not be judged by things that are beyond my control both of those uh, bring up my dander. Yeah. So here's my vow. My vow for the future is that when someone gives me parenting advice, like actual advice, not just being a dick, uh, I will slow my roll. I will try not to take umbrage at the very idea that someone has something to say to me. And I will consider carefully if that advice might, in fact, be useful. And whether it is or is not useful, I will just say, thank you for your advice. And then I will say silently in my head, you asshole. That sounds perfect. Yeah. All right. 
Uh, let's move on to recommendations. Dan, do you have a recommendation for us today? Um, I do have a recommendation today. I want to recommend a series of books, uh, Brad Meltzer's I Am series. I don't know if this has come up on the podcast before. Um, I can't remember, but if so, uh, I know Brad a little, so I'm sure he'll be happy to have it mentioned This twice. is, okay, great. Well, I think that they are tremendous. They are these, it's a series of books. There are probably over half a dozen of them. There are, there are books, you know, I Am Jackie Robinson, I Am Rosa Parks, I Am Albert Einstein, I Am Abraham Lincoln, Amelia Earhart, Lucille Ball, somewhat improbably, um, Helen Keller. They keep on coming out. There are new ones all the time. Our kids really love them. There are these wonderful short books about people overcoming adversity and unfairness to change the world. And the message is really consistent and sort of the setup is really consistent. You know, you use your moral compass, you believe in yourself, you fight, sometimes literally, like sometimes they're like literal, they're like punching in these books. You don't quit and you care for others. And they're delivered in this really, really straightforward, rousing style. And they end, you know, almost at the sort of like at the ramparts way where it's like, I am Abraham Lincoln, and I will never stop fighting for what is right. And I think it's this wonderful, what I love about the books is that it's this wonderful way, you know, to introduce your kids to sort of like struggle and social change in a really like safe and age appropriate and positive way. And they're just really fun and triumphant, you know, especially I think for like, you know, little, little liberals, maybe, but I might be reading too much into the politics of the books. So anyway, I would highly recommend Brad Meltzer's I Am series. I am Dan Coyce, and I recommend a new picture book, great for reading aloud, or actually it seems really great for reading along with a new reader, you, where you might trade off lines with a new reader, the way little kids who are just learning to read really love to do. It is called Ask Me. It is written by Bernard Weber and illustrated by Susie Lee. So Weber is a sort of legendary children's book writer and artist who died in 2013. He was the author of the Lyle the Crocodile books, Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile. Mm -hmm. Susie Lee is a really great children's book writer and illustrator who lives in South Korea. And Ask Me is, it's very simple. It is a simple and very relatable conversation between a father and a daughter, just drama over the course of the entire book. It's a father and a daughter walking through the park, having a conversation about things. She wants him to ask her questions about herself and because she delights in, in answering them. I really love this book. It's beautiful to look at, but also I just really loved that it clearly shows a father very simply listening to and engaging in and sort of joining in the, the conversational game in a way of his daughter. And my best parenting experiences with my daughters have often been when I sort of let go of other bullshit and allow myself to do that for long periods. Uh, this is a really great book to remind me of that. It's out this month. We will have a pre-order link on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And that's our show. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com to suggest topics, to recommend books or guests or whatever. And if you've got a question you want us to answer, please give us a call. Leave a message at 424-255-RUDE. That number again, 424-255-7833. Please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fighting, where you can discuss this week's episode, see our recommendations, and more. Please subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Mom and Dad Are Fighting and leave a comment or a rating that helps people find the show. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. See our full roster of shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And once again, please tell your friends. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and our great intern, Jesse Chasen Tabor. Thanks to the managing producer of Slate Podcast, Joel Meyer, and the executive producer, Andy Bowers. Thanks to Andrew Solomon for joining us for the show. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.